So this week we'll return to our series in Genesis, and the place where I'm going to begin reading is after Adam and Eve have sinned. They have made themselves aprons out of fig leaves, and they are trying to hide themselves from the presence of God, which is an impossibility. Genesis chapter 3, let's read verses 9 through 15. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In verses 14 and 15, we have God's curse upon Satan and the serpent. Verse 14 is a curse upon the physical serpent, which was the agent that Satan used in deceiving Eve. But also, verse 14 is a curse against Satan as well to show us how Satan has been brought low. And then in verse 15, it's a clear curse upon Satan. Last time, we covered verse 14. We took note of how Satan is ultimately a defeated foe, though God is permitting him this season to roam up and down the earth. And that's going to come to an end on the day of judgment. Amen. There will be a thousand year period, the Bible says, that he'll be chained. But he will be loosed for a season then. And then the day will come that he'll be cast into the lake of fire that burneth with brimstone for all eternity. And the devil will deceive the nations no more. What a day that will be. Amen. Remember how the phrase is, Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat. They both picture defeat. The emphasis last time was that no child of God should fear Satan because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. If you're in Christ today, never forget that Satan and his demons are on the losing side. Therefore, we need to stop trying to blame the devil for everything wrong in our life. Don't do like Eve, though, well, the devil made me do it. No child of God can say that. And we need to understand that. And we just need to admit that sometimes we make dumb decisions. What are we supposed to do then? We're supposed to die to your flesh. Die to yourself. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's really that simple. Amen. Now, as we come to verse 15 today, we have the second part of Satan's curse. Let's look at that again. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I think it's safe to say that this is one of the most famed Old Testament verses. The reason why is because this is what is called a proto-evangelium. <laughs> I 
That is such a hard word to say. <clears throat> now, I practiced that so I would sound smart and the Lord is smart, smiting my pride. What is a proto-evangelium? I don't know, but that's what they said. <clears throat> proto-evangelium means it's the first mention of the gospel. It means first gospel. <clears throat> Look, you guys pay me to be this smart. Come on. Proto-evangelium. <laughs> People acting like I'm not smart walking out. Come on, come on. <clears throat> anyway, it means first gospel. And so this is the first presentation of the gospel in the Bible. It's the first prophetic reference to the coming of Christ. And when you read the Bible, what you need to understand is this book which God has given to mankind is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, from cover to cover. He's the grand subject of the Bible. He is the theme of the Bible. In chapters 1 and 2, we have the account of God's creation, how He made everything perfect from the beginning. Chapter 3 opens where it all went wrong. We have Satan coming on the scene. He deceives Eve. She, she gives in to that temptation. She sins. She gives to Adam. He just rebels against God and sins. And now their conscience has been awakened to the fact that they're sinners. They attempt to deal with it by their own works, sewing fig leaves together to hide their shame. And then they try to hide themselves from the presence of God. God calls out to Adam in an attempt to draw them out, to bring them unto Himself, because God wants them to admit their guiltiness so that they can recognize their need for redemption. And after all that, we get this great verse, verse 15. After sin has entered the world, immediately we find there's a coming Redeemer. L listen, you've got, to, you've got to grasp this verse. You say, how important is verse 15? The rest of the Bible is an expose of this verse. Amen. This is just one of those verses that, that you need to get a hold of. The Old Testament from this point forward builds upon this verse to show us that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the promised seed of God. And then the Gospels reveal that He's the one who is the promised seed, and He's the covenant confirmer. He's the fulfillment of all that. And then the book of Acts, the letters to the new, in the New Testament, they all reveal Christ is the head of His church. And then in the Revelation, we see that Christ is a conquering king. It's all about Christ is what I'm saying. And so this verse here, everything now is going to build upon this verse. This whole Bible is about Christ. And although Christ can be seen in the creation account, we took note of some of those things when we were over there, this is the, the first clear promise of the Savior's arrival. And so we must understand all we can from this verse. Amen. We know that all the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine. We know that all Scriptures are profitable, but I think you would agree with what I'm trying to communicate that there are certain verses that are absolutely foundational and you have to understand those if you're going to understand the message of the Bible. This is one of those verses. So let's jump into this. God begins by saying to Satan, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Because Christ would be the seed of the woman, this means in order for this verse to be fulfilled, God the Son would have to robe himself in flesh, 
which we know He did, being conceived of the Holy Ghost, of the Virgin Mary, born into this world. Christ set aside His glory in exchange for the likeness of sinful men. Philippians 2, verses 6-8 through tells us of Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So with Christ's birth in mind here in verse 15, I want to go ahead and cover this particular thought that often comes up here. Some see verse 15 as a clear prophecy of the virgin birth because of the phrase, her seed. Biologically speaking, women do not have seed. Men do. Therefore, the thought is, her seed must be a reference to the virgin birth. The only problem with being dogmatic on that statement at this point in the Bible's, in the, in the chronology of the Bible, is there's going to be two other times down the road in Genesis where her seed is mentioned and it's not connected to any virgin birth. The angel of the Lord is going to say to Hagar in Genesis 16.10 that he would multiply her seed exceedingly. And in Genesis 24.60, Rebekah's family blesses her seed. So while this expression here in Genesis 3.15 of her seed does not exclude a virgin birth, we cannot say dogmatically that it establishes it either. A man named Ernest F. Kevin wrote this, It is not right to infer the virgin birth from the proto-evangelium. <laughs> but it is certainly quite legitimate to look back from the point of view of the virgin birth and see how marvelously close were the words of promise to the mode of the performance, end quote. In other words, if you did not know the end from the beginning like we do in this particular instance of the virgin birth, if you did not have that information and you were standing here when God made this announcement of the promised seed being on the way, that you, your mind likely wouldn't have gone straight to a virgin birth. You'd had no other scriptures available to you. But knowing what we do now, especially from Isaiah 7.14, which prophesied of a virgin birth, how the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he tells her, you're going to conceive the Lord Jesus being a virgin. Uh, we can look back now and we can see how this verse can be interpreted as being prophetic of the virgin birth. I like what H.L. Ellison wrote, quote, not until the virgin birth could the full implication of the promise be understood, end quote. Which is to say that this prophecy is of the virgin birth in hindsight. And there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies like that that we don't fully understand until we get to the New Testament, such as the mystery of the church. Those who were going through the Old Testament times, it was a mystery. And that's why when we get to the New Testament, it calls it a mystery. <laughs> Proto-evangelium. Yeah. If I ever mess up, we're just going to throw that word out and it's going to sound like, oh, well, he must have said something good. <laughs> For what it's worth, I personally agree with viewing this as a prophetic verse of the virgin birth when we compare Scripture with Scripture. All right, I hope that made sense. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Not only is the birth of Christ foretold here, but we see that the Messiah is going to be a male. We see that Christ will suffer. We see that Christ will get the ultimate victory over Satan. 
We also find that Satan is a real enemy. There will be conflict between Satan and the woman. There will be conflict between two seeds. The Bible word used here for enmity, it means hatred and hostility towards an enemy. Some see a literal interpretation here and suppose that women generally have a greater fear and hatred and hatred of snakes than men. I don't know if that's true. But there was a man named Valentin Grimaldo in May of 1996 near Encino, Texas. And he reached his, he, he, he reached his hand into the grass and a coral snake bit him, a venomous snake. And so what did he do? He grabbed the snake, bit its head off, skinned it, and used the skin for a tourniquet. Now, I can't see many women doing that. I can't see me doing that. Now, an isolated event like that doesn't prove that women have greater fear than snakes. I know a young married couple that went to go look at their apartment, and there was a snake in there. And it was the woman who went over and grabbed the snake and took it out. Say, how do you know that? Because it was Grant and Sydney. Now, I don't know if it just played out that way, Grant, or if you were like, yeah, go ahead. Because I can promise you, if there was a snake in our house, and Adrian's like, I'll take care of it, I'll be like, go ahead, girl. I'll be over here giving you emotional support. Anyway, I don't know if, if one has more fear of the other. I don't believe we're meant to see a literal interpretation here is what I'm getting at. I think we are meant to under, understand this spiritually. There is a spiritual hatred between Satan and the woman. Earlier in this chapter, the serpent and the woman were engaged in a friendly dialogue with each other. But from this point forward, Satan would be an enemy to the woman and he would hate her because from her would come the seed, the promised seed of God that would bruise the head of Satan. I'm still chewing on this, but you've heard me say often, women are often more spiritual than men, especially in the beginning of a relationship. I wonder sometimes if it doesn't tie back to this hatred between the woman and the serpent. Something to chew on there. But, but in God choosing the woman to bring the Messiah into the world, we see God's grace toward the woman. We see His honor toward the woman manifested. All of this bestowed upon her, though she was the first in sin. She's now going to get the last laugh, if you will, by bringing Christ into the world through the process of birth. And it's going to be with no help from a man because he's going to be of the seed of the woman. And because of this hatred of the woman, there would be enmity between Satan's seed and her seed. Now, Satan's not out there making babies. <clears throat> we'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 6. I know a lot of people think angels were hooking up with chicks and they were making this giant race of men. I don't believe that. We'll get to that in Genesis 6. Satan is not out there making babies. Okay? So when the, when the Bible here speaks about his seed, it is a spiritual seed that is being referred to. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees claim to be the seed of Abraham. 
You might remember that exchange between the two. They were speaking fleshly, but then Jesus, He turns it around on them, and He applies it spiritually, and He says, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. Then they had the audacity to claim that Jesus was illegitimate. They said, we be not born of fornication. They called our Lord a bastard. And so they had the audacity to hurl this accusation at Jesus. Do you know what Jesus said in response? Ye are of your father, the devil. What was Jesus saying? You're not the spiritual offspring of Abraham. You might be in the flesh. But listen, in the spirit, you're a child of the devil. I'm trying to tell you there's two seeds. And so there's the seed of Satan. And then, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul would write in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. He's the promised seed. And then in Galatians 3.29, the end of that chapter, we read this, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's two seeds, spiritually speaking. There is the seed of Satan, there is the seed of Christ. And these two, I shouldn't have to convince you of this, they are at enmity with one another. They do not like each other, they do not get along. Revelation 12, 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now what we need to understand, as God pronounces this judgment against Satan, He is putting Satan on notice, your days are numbered, buddy. Your head's going to get crushed. And He's putting Satan on notice here, that he, he better recognize... <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> praise God. While Satan would bruise the promised seed's heel, the promised seed's going to crush or bruise the head of Satan. Say, what does that mean? That means Satan's going to get in his licks, but Christ is going to get the victory. Amen. Satan would ultimately be defeated. And because this verse is an announcement of how God will bring victory through Christ, Satan does what you would expect any enemy to do. He launches an all-out attack upon the seed of the woman. And he does so in an attempt to prevent this promised seed from coming on the scene. And there's much we could cover. I only have so much time and I already took out a lot of this message. So I'm going to go through some of this pretty fast. But surely Satan must have trembled at the curse being pronounced upon him by God Almighty. God says you're going to, you're going to be bruised in the head. That's a bad thing. Satan may be cunning and crafty, but Satan is not all wise. And so at this point, he doesn't understand it all. All he knows is someone's going to be born of a woman that's going to cause me problems. And sure enough, we see that this greatest of battles begins to unfold in the very next chapter of our Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, we find Cain and Abel bringing an offering before the Lord. God had respect unto Abel's, but he rejected Cain's. 
And that led to a strife between the two brothers. And what do we find happen? Cain rises up and he kills Abel. Why? Because of Genesis 3.15. I'm sure there's other things we can add in there, but when we remove the curtain and we look at this spiritually behind the scenes, what you'll find throughout the Bible is this verse being worked out before our eyes. The Bible says in 1 John 3.2, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Cain kills Abel because he was of that wicked one. Who's the wicked one? It's Satan. His works were evil. The, the wicked one is referring to Satan, and Jesus said of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan could look at the two, Cain and Abel, and he could see that one was righteous and one wasn't. Therefore, he may have thought that Abel was the promised seed. Or at least he needed to kill Abel in order to prevent the promised seed from arriving. So Satan puts it in the heart of Cain, kill Abel. But God had other plans. And God brought another seed to Adam and Eve. His name is Seth. In Genesis 4.25, Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth. But listen to what she says next. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. There's so much I, I want to get in here, but we've got to move quickly. By Genesis 12, God now narrows the line. At first, it's just the seed of the woman. By Genesis 12, God narrows the line down to uh, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, they have their own child of promise. They have their own miracle baby in Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob. And ultimately, Genesis 3.15 is the reason why Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob in time becomes Israel. When the children of Israel go down into Egypt, there are only 70 souls, but they soon grew into a multitude of people. And Satan then unleashed a hellish attack upon the offspring of Abraham. He put it in the mind of Pharaoh. You'll remember the account. He puts it in the mind of Pharaoh that it's time that they start killing all the baby Hebrew boys. Why would such a thing be put into his head? It was to stop the promised seed from arriving. And no doubt Satan would have had his eye fixed upon the line of Judah because of what Jacob said in Genesis 49.10 where he said, blessing his sons about what would happen to them in the last days, he said of Judah that a lawgiver shall come. Shiloh shall come. Who's Shiloh? It's the Messiah. It's the promised seed. The, the first king of Israel was a Benjamite in Saul. And when David was young, remember Samuel came and he anoints David as the next king, although it took years before David was on the throne. He was anointed as king. Satan knew at that point, I've got to zero my attention in on David. And that's exactly what he does in trying to snuff out the promised seed. You'll remember the Bible mentions twice that an evil spirit comes upon Saul when he took a javelin and he threw it at David intending to pin him to the wall. He wanted to kill David an evil spirit. What do you think Satan's trying to get Saul to do? Take out the kingly line from which the promised seed would arrive. And then afterwards, we know how David or how Saul was in pursuit of David trying to take his life. Behind it all is Genesis 3.15. Satan's desire to eliminate the kingly line because of the promised seed. The seed was then narrowed. Uh, it was from the woman down to Abraham and then from Abraham down to Judah, and then David's on the phone. On the phone. David's on the throne. <laughs> What's up, David? Uh, they didn't have phones, amen? They just had 10 cans. What? 
Uh, and so, did they have 10? Terracotta cans. Anyway, uh, and so David, he's on the throne, and God now narrows it down to David. So it goes from the woman to Abraham to Judah to David. David was of the line of Judah. I forgot to mention that earlier. And God narrows it down even further. And of course, God now, or Satan now, zeroes in on the offspring of David. God declared to David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. So Satan knows, I got to take out David. Now, it would take far too long to explain, okay? And I know I'm covering a lot, but it would take far too long to explain that Satan was unaware that Christ would actually come through Nathan's line and not Solomon's. Long story short, Solomon was the kingly line through which Joseph, the husband of Mary, would be born. But Nathan was the line through which Mary would be born. And so Joseph wasn't really his father, earthly speaking, right? It was the Holy Ghost that allowed Mary to conceive. So in reality, Jesus actually comes through the line of Nathan. Anyway, you can read all that in Matthew and Luke. So while Satan's focused on the kingly line of Solomon, we find that there's at least three times, and this just amazes me, there's at least three times that the kingly line through which Christ would come, um, being born king, because Joseph would have been king had everything progressed the way it should have without them going into sin. But anyway, three times the line got down to one person. Can you imagine that? One person. If that one person could be snuffed out, then God's Davidic covenant would be broken. There would be no one to sit upon the throne of David. There would, there would be no one to rule and to reign. And so, by the way, Nathan and Solomon are both born of Bathsheba. I forgot to mention that. So Satan, he's focused on the king, kingly line, and it comes down to just one person three times. And we see just how close Satan was to eradicating the Davidic kingly line from which God said the throne would be established forever. One is in 2 Chronicles 21.4. Jehoram becomes the king, and when he becomes king, he kills all of his brothers. And he's the only one left. And though he was a wicked king, God would not destroy him. Why? The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 21.7, Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David, because of the covenant that God had made with David. And he promised to give a light to him and his sons forever. But because of Jehoram's wickedness, God did send him an incurable disease in his bowels. I don't know what that is, but that don't sound pleasant. (laughs) During that time, the enemy comes against Judah, and all of his sons were killed, save Jehoahaz, the youngest son. That was the second time the kingly line was down to just one left. And the third time would be in 2 Chronicles 22.10. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. But then 2 Chronicles 22.11, it says, But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain, and put him in, the nurse, and put him in his nurse in a bedchamber, So Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, did you get all that? Hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. This this account is absolutely amazing because here's a baby. And the Davidic line hangs on a thread. This one kid. 
If he's killed, that's it. And they hide him for six years in the temple in order that his life would not be taken. And of course, his life could not be taken because God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. Interesting note here, Tim mentioned this yesterday at men's prayer. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah was king over Judah and he was sick unto death. You may remember that. He asked God for an extension to his life. God adds 15 years. Why? Well, for one reason, it was because the next one in the line of the kings had to be born. Three years in the head of Hezekiah's 15 years, Manasseh would be born, who was of the kingly line of the promised seed of Jesus. Had Hezekiah died when he was sick, that kingly line would have been cut off. So we might get at a fourth time there. But all the while, God, throughout the Old Testament, He's reaffirming that this promised seed is going to arrive. He says in Isaiah 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He says in Isaiah 9, 6, that a child shall be born unto you. The government shall be upon his shoulders. All those things that we read about through Isaiah, God is reminding them, I haven't forgotten. The promised seed is going to arrive. God keeps reaffirming this as you read through your Old Testament. But Satan didn't give up. He, he keeps up his attack. He tries to eradicate the entire tribe of Judah when he placed in the mind of Haman the plot to eradicate all the Jews over there in the book of Esther, which we're studying on Wednesday night. But God overrode Satan's plans yet again. Finally, 4,000 years from Genesis 3.15, 4,000 years from when that promise was given, Gabriel announces to the Virgin Mary that she'll give birth to the promised seed. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. And how Satan must have trembled again when the announcement was made in Luke chapter 2 to those shepherds who were abiding in the field. And the, the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you uh, tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. At last, the promised seed had arrived. Satan's efforts had failed, but the battle was not over. He didn't prevent the promised seed's arrival, but now he would try to prevent the promised seed from fulfilling God's will. In an effort to kill the promised seed, you'll remember that Herod had all the babies in Bethlehem and the coast thereof, two years old and under, killed. Is it just because Herod wanted to stay on the throne? That may be part of it, but it's because of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And Herod rises up and he kills all these babies, why? In attempt to kill the one that was born king. It would appear somehow Satan loses track of Jesus in his youth, or at the very least, God keeps Satan back. But after Jesus is baptized, there's no hiding Christ any longer. He's baptized by John the Baptist, not John the Methodist. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and as he comes up out of the water... The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, lights upon him, and there's a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What do you think Satan's doing at that point? There he is. What does Satan do next? 
Jesus is led of the Spirit into the wilderness right after He's baptized, right after His identity is revealed. And then Satan leads Him out into the wilderness and He tempts Him for 40 days. We have three of those temptations recorded. You read Luke, it's clear He was tempted the whole time. What does Satan do in one of those temptations? He says, Jesus, why don't you get up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off? Actually, He took Him up there and said, jump. What's He trying to do? He's trying to get the Son of God to kill to kill Himself. Listen, he, he uses the scripture. He kind of twisted it, but he says, you know, the angels are going to pick you up lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Satan doesn't want Christ to do what he came to do. And I'm just saying, we're seeing this battle of Genesis 3.15 continue to rage. I don't have time to, to get into it, but you know there are several times when we read in the Gospels that they would pick up stones desiring to kill him. Where's that coming from? Satan wanting to keep Jesus from doing What? going to the cross. Because Jesus made it clear, I need to be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And Satan knew at that point, I've got to keep Christ from going to the cross. And so, this battle continues. In Matthew 16, Jesus, He shows His disciples, listen, I've got to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed to the hands of sinners. They're going to, they're going to crucify me, but I'm going to rise again the third day. Peter takes Jesus and He rebukes Him. Be afar from thee, Lord. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. What's Jesus saying? Listen, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to go because that's why the Father has sent me. And if you don't want me going to the cross, you're no different than Satan who's trying to keep me from getting there and has been trying for the last 4,000 years. And from this and other statements, we can infer Satan knows what his objective is. If I can just keep Jesus from being lifted up, what happens? Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, which means an oil press. Excuse me, it means an oil press. For all you northerners. An oil press. And, and Jesus, he, he kneels in prayer. Remember, the Bible says He was in agony. He, he's, he's in this, this oil press and... and and all of hell is being pressed upon them and unleashed upon them. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get the Son of God to die and not go to the cross. And he's in agony as he prays. And the Bible says that his sweat, whereas it were great drops of blood falling to the ground, being in such agony. Oh, Father, help me. And then the Bible says that the angels came and ministered unto him and strengthened him. Why? Because he had an objective. Jesus was eventually arrested. The council spit in his face. They punched him. Tell me who it is that hits you. He was taken before Pilate. And the Romans scourge Jesus. And if you could understand what scourging is, you would realize it is ripping flesh from the body. It is leaving a person an absolute, unrecognizable, bloody mess. Most would die from just the scourging. And we can imagine as Jesus is being scourged and, and those nails and those pieces of glass that are embedded in that whip reach around and tear His skin off that Satan is standing over there smiling. Hopefully He'll die. Satan wanted Jesus to be killed during that scourging. But Jesus said, no man taketh my life. 
I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. At last, they lead Jesus outside the city bearing His cross and they finally make it up to Golgotha, the place of the skull, Mount Calvary as we call it. And there, they laid Him upon that cross and they nailed Him to that cross and literally His feet were being bruised just like Genesis 3.15 says. But Jesus was lifted up. And as Jesus was lifted up on that cross dying of suffocation, asphyxiation. You can't breathe. And as Jesus is feeling this torture, all of a sudden, the Son of God has enough strength to lift Himself up just enough and cry out, It is finished. It is finished. Satan had failed. Jesus had been lifted up just like He said He would be. Satan's head was crushed. But I can't help but wonder in Satan's twisted mind if he thought, well, he's in the grave. Maybe I do have the victory. God's going to remove all doubt three days later. Amen. Jesus is going to come forth alive out of the tomb. And the Bible says in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, that Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And, and get this now. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Who's that? Satan and his minions. Having spoiled principalities and powers. And having made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What is the writer of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, telling us? Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. It has come to pass. It has happened. Jesus arose triumphantly over Satan. Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What God promised in the Garden of Eden was completed on the cross, and certainly we can say it was completed in the garden tomb where He rose again. Now why take all this time to tell you about this 4,000 year trail of blood? Because throughout the Bible, it is the outworking of Genesis 3.15. Satan tried to prevent the promised seed's arrival and his work, but God overruled. And I want you to understand that it's all because God made a promise to mankind. God made a promise that I will arrive and I will bruise the head of Satan. And, and as I as I thought about this message, and, and I know I'm keeping you here a little bit long, as I thought about this message and all that took place throughout the Old Testament, trust me, I left a lot out. How can we not see God's great love for us? That He would keep His Word in Genesis 3.15, which now is 6,000 years ago. That He would keep that Word. Why? Because He loves you. He wants you to be saved. He wants to have a relationship with you. And you can be saved if you'll run to Christ in faith. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Remember this morning, there's only two seeds. You're either a child of the devil or a child of God. That's it. Which camp are you in? Let's pray.